Man, I want to welcome you to the show, Sports Hip Hop with DJ Mad Max, Live 365, iHeartRadio. We have the one and only Eric Nenninger. You may know him from Jeepers Creepers 2, One Day at a Time, Malcolm in the Middle, Mad Men, CSI, NCIS, Big Bang Theory. He's been in so many things, guest spots, and he's here to join me on the show here tonight. And newest with Winning Time with the Lakers yeah. dynasties. You can catch that right now on HBO. Eric Nenninger, welcome to the show. How's it going, man? Very good, Max. Thanks so much for having me, dude. I love that jersey. I love that hat. That was nice to see you pop up like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm my sure, heart. <laughs> I'm sure that you saw the the flyer and you were like, oh, look, pond scum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right away, I was like, I don't know if we're going to be able to agree to do this, man. <laughs> <laughs> Max is going to come at me hard. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. But wherever my guest is from, I usually have a hat and a jersey, so I throw it on for my guest. So. That's very cool. Very cool. Of course. But how are you feeling about the Cardinals this year, first in the NL Central? Yeah, Clemson Central, dude. I'm excited. I couldn't believe like it was literally just supposed to be, you know, Yadi Molina and, and Albert Pujols' last year and then possibly Wainwright. And we were just going to take a trip around the bases and then it turned into a pennant race and they clinched the Central. And Albert's sitting on 702 right now, I think. Um, they're playing right now, the Pirates. So it might be 703. But I don't know. My boys are all freaking out. Like we can't believe that like we get more playoff baseball, but just that Albert is contributing. You know, he's not just doing like a home run chase, he's contributing to us winning the central and they you know they look good they're a hot team i mean we got to beat the mets that's going to be tough yeah know? well i think that might be easy after this brave series here i think it's <laughs> over <laughs> i don't know yeah the one two for the mets is scary man i don't want to see degrom and scherzer so oh. but i also don't want to see the dodgers either so no no the dodgers are tough but i, I think you get yeah. past the mets as we saw this past week in their frauds and um you know <laughs> I, <laughs> they really are i'm I'm over them. But I, I want to get into your life story, man, because I brought you on the show here tonight because growing up when I was younger, I saw you in Cheapers Creepers 2, and that was my introduction to your acting career and Malcolm in the Middle, watching the reruns of that show. I know you revisited Malcolm in the Middle during the quarantine with your family. Yeah, my, I have a 16-year-old son, so he was probably 14 at the time, and he sat down with my 8-year-old daughter, and they binged the entire series because there was nothing to do. And it was just reminded how awesome that show was. It was, I mean, it's great and it's so goofy and it's so funny and it's so heartwarming. And so it was really cool to see it again from start to finish. And I was in season two and three. So dad pops up for a little bit, but then they just keep watching and they enjoyed it, whether I was on it or not. You know, it's a great show. Something that hit hard to home, I know right after Jeepers Creepers 2 is when you were released from Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah. Yeah. It was an interesting thing. Like I was a young guy. I was probably 23 at the time. I signed a contract. Um, so for the second season of Malcolm in the Middle, I was just episode to episode. So they would call when they wanted to use me. And then they decided that they wanted me to be available, you know, when they needed me. So they signed you to what's called a series regular contract. And, you know, the details of the contract would basically be that I would be in every other episode uh, minimum, you know. I, that was it. I was done. I was like buying a house. I mean, I was set because Malcolm in the Middle was a hit. I signed a fat contract that had seven years in front of me laid out. And, and I was 23. I had no idea how it worked. So I coincidentally was trying to do Jeepers Creepers 2. And the dates, they were worried that Malcolm in the Middle would want me after I did the third season of them. So they called and they're like, we're not really sure what's going on. You know, agents call people and stuff. And then the creator of the show, uh, whose name is Linwood Boomer, um, who's a great guy and like set the tone for that show. I was spoiled working on that show because everybody was so genuine and talented and set an example of like what it was like to work in TV. So I guess it got to him that Eric has a movie um, potentially. Is he free from Malcolm in the Middle? Well, Linwood knew that the storyline was going to be changing. So he called or had somebody call and say, yeah, Eric's, Eric's free. Don't let him lose this movie because we're not going to be using him in the next season. 
So it was this kind of like blessing because I was like, oh, great, I can do this cool horror movie. But at the same time, I didn't quite process that that meant that I wasn't going to be on the show anymore. Um, and so it was a bit of a shock because I didn't realize that they can drop your contract. You know, um, I don't have any hard feelings for Malcolm in the Middle by any means at all. I was just young. I saw, you know, what I had signed. I thought that it was a guarantee. And the storyline changed. And it turns out like if they're not going to use you, they can release you essentially from it. Um, so that was a bit of a blow, you know, um, but you know, you take it, you learn from it and then you bounce back and keep doing stuff. So I, I love that show and everybody that's a part of it. Yeah. Cadet Eric Hansen there. Yeah. The the writers got real creative with the name. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> yeah. It was great, man. Oh yeah. No, there, there's some funny scenes there. I look back on, especially when you're bringing the laundry in. Yeah, I was, I was just watching that clip that you put up on Instagram. I mean, I was watching those Jeepers Creepers 2 clips, too, with my wife last night, and we hadn't seen that movie in years, man. I appreciate <laughs> you putting that together. I was rewatching them, like, wondering what's going to happen, you know? <laughs> and then, yeah, that laundry episode was funny, too, with all the pink stuff. Drew Powell is the guy who's in that, too. He's another, you know, job and actor. He's a friend of mine that bounced around a lot. He was on Gotham for a while playing, like, some fish mongrel. But to see him 20 years younger you know, and, and, and probably 50 pounds lighter. <laughs> if Drew heard me, he'd be laughing, but that was cool to revisit both of those old projects. Definitely mad, man. I made to put, put that scene in there for you. And people consider that one of the greatest scenes in TV history as well. Every, every I noticed that every TV episode that you've been in from the X-Files, cause that was your first taste of entertainment business right there was Pretty the much, X-Files. Yeah. Every yeah. episode that you touched in cinema, it, it was a huge hit each episode. It, it's a strange, strange thing. I get these like, you know, relatively small roles, like the Mad Men monologue was just one scene, but they always end up being in these really pivotal episodes of television. Like the X-Files was one of the first things that I ever did and the first real thing that I ever did. And the guy who was the guest star ended up getting like a guest star Emmy for it because he was portraying this kind of like Appalachian religion called Shakers who handle snakes. And so the whole thing was about snake handlers and I get killed in the very first teaser of the show uh, by snakes, but this guy's parents and, and family were shakers. So he came to the uh, X-Files uh, producers and he said, I'll do this, but not if you're going to make fun of them. And they said, no, can you please tell us how to do it accurately? We like this stuff. So it becomes this iconic episode that I'm just the guy that got killed in the beginning of it. And then I did an episode of CSI uh, where it was this really dark storyline. It was the first I, time it got real gory. Very, very, it got very, very gory. Dakota Fanning happened to be in it when she was a child. And, and I ran into the director. Um, ironically, I did another episode of CSI about 10 years later as a police officer, because I guess they had gone through every cast member that, or every actor in Hollywood. And they had to start cycling back around. And the guy was directing and he was like, yeah, that gory episode is what shot us up in the ratings. And like people love CSI because of that. So I was like, OK, great. And then Mad Men, I end up being the guy that bores Don Draper into retirement, like the third episode from the end of the entire series. And people <laughs> always remember that one that I'm doing. Essentially, I'm doing his monologue that, you know, in the sales pitch sitting in the boardroom that he had done so many years, but he's now over it. And mine is so, you know, contrived and boring that he just gets up and walks away. <laughs> but I take pride in that. I love that. I love that I was, you know, on the goriest episode of CSI or, you know, the craziest X-Files or, you know, I bit more a tyranny on um, ER and said bitch, which I think was one of the first times that NBC was allowing that curse word on it. So I'll take pride in that as well. <laughs> Anthony Edwards put you in the headlock there and he <laughs> told you that if you keep fighting, I'm going to fight you down. 
Yeah, relax, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was like, the harder you push, the harder I have to push. And I was like, brother, this is my first episode of ER. You've been on it for a long time. I'm coming with it. I got a neck cramp that day, man. That was terrible. Probably should have listened to him. Uh, but you, you come from a, a line in your family of entertainers because I know you're all pranksters, jokesters. You, your mother carried a water bug and would put it in a glass of water at a restaurant because uh, especially if a waitress had a good sense of humor, she put Vaseline on doorknobs. Yeah. My family is all full of practical jokesters, which was how I got my sense of humor. My wife's not a big practical jokester. She's like, why would you hurt me to get a laugh? You know? And I'm like, Oh, if you come from my family, you'd understand it. But yeah, my mother would carry a water bug, like a plastic water bug in her purse. And she would put it in a glass of water at a restaurant, which makes it all huge and distort it and then hand it to the waitress. Or sometimes on a buffet line, she would leave it behind her for the next person to find, which seems crazy. But to me, it was normal family stuff. Like my grandfather had a glass of it was brandy, which if you knew my grandfather, you knew that he never drank brandy. But it was one of those fake ones that have a seal on the outside of it. And he would come like walking up to you and then trip and sort of splash it on you. And then it wouldn't splash. Or he would come down the stairs with a pillow wrapped up, swaddled like a baby. Again, my grandfather was the father of four. He never held one of those kids one time. Like right away, you should have been like, this is a joke. And then he would trip and drop the baby, which was just a pillow wrapped in a baby blanket. And that was just how we grew up. I mean, we just grew up like pulling jokes on each other. Uh, I mean, easy ones from like, if you go to the bathroom at a restaurant, we take your plate of food and like hide it under your chair uh, to like really complicated ones. One of my favorite ones my mother ever pulled on my brother was when he went away to college, he went to University of Missouri and he had done a dumb one on her. So she was pissed. So the night after like the big homecoming dance, his freshman year or sophomore year, because I think he was in a fraternity and she knew that he would be out partying all night long. She just called him up and she said, hey, I'm going to drop off a couch for you. I'll be there at like 9 a.m. or something. She just calls him up and says, hey, Scott, I'll be there tomorrow at 9 a.m. And he can't say, no, don't come at 9 a.m. I'm going to be out partying all night because he's you know underage at the time. So she, he wakes up all hungover, like gets himself together. Wait, my mom never shows up. She, there was no couch. There was never any intention on going. It was such a simple little joke that she pulled on my brother, Scott. And and he and he finally figures it out around noon, you know, because like like with my mom, you you it cut you dawns on you eventually. You're like, I've been had again. So that was kind of where I got my sense of humor from a little bit. That and watching a ton of television. It, that consisted of Cheers and the Cosby Show. I know that you were main in sitcoms. Yeah, mainly steeped in sitcoms. I watched any sitcom that was on. I mean, you know, TGIF and the you know must see TV on Thursday on NBC's like. Everything from, you know, step by step to like that dinosaur show that was on there, 227. Um, if it was reruns, like if I was home from school, I was watching Leave it to Beaver. I was watching I Love Lucy. I was watching Cosby, obviously Cheers, Seinfeld, Friends, um, Family Matters. Like it didn't matter. Gilligan's Island. Yeah, a little bit of Gilligan's yeah. Island, which is great. That was a wild one. That would have to be reruns, you know. <laughs> Wings. I don't know if you remember the Cheers. Or you, you're, oh, you're, yeah. You're the Cheers spinoff of Wings was a good one that I would watch. But just all the time, constantly, sitcoms and then, you know, drama shows too, but mainly the comedy ones. Mm -hmm. I, I know your mother was good at seeing what you were interested in because she'd be bringing you to auditions. She was in the theater as well and, and me doing my research. Dead Poet Society was the movie that really wanted you to get into acting. That was the main inspiration there. Yeah, my mom was super supportive all the time, which was a blessing. You know what I mean? It's probably one of the most, the things that I love most about her was that if you were into something, she would, you know, get you there. 
find a way for you to do it. So if I said, mom, I want to be an actor or I'd love to find a play, she would find the audition for me, drive me there, drop me off, you know, get me ready to go. And in St. Louis, there was, you know, a couple of theaters and she would go and take me to the show. So that kind of, we would also go see movies. Um, Once my brother was out of the house and my sister was out of the house, it was just my mom and I, and we would go see movies together. Um, And that was just like how I hung out with mom. And she would probably just listen to me talk her ear off about the movies constantly. But one of those ones right in the 90s would have been Dead Poet Society. And it was just like, it just hits you so hard. Um, And Robin Williams was so great. And I think I didn't realize how much it had affected me until he passed. And I started looking at all the movies that he was in. But that was one for some reason, I guess, because it was funny. He had that, you know, comedy drama things that he did so well. And I probably looked up to him as an actor, you know, wanted to be like him or, or wish that I was as talented as he was. And so when I looked back on it, I was like, I didn't even realize that Dead Poet Society hit me that hard, inspired me that much, made me want to be an actor, essentially. And it's funny how little things in your past, you don't realize how they sit with you until something shines a light on it like that, like his passing. But that's a great movie, man. Yeah, that's no, Josh Charles is. is in that too. A young, a young Josh Charles is in that too. That's right. No, that's a classic movie. And Robin Williams is one of those actors that was able to transcend into the the drama genre because you saw him in Insomnia, One Hour Photo. He was doing these crazy movies aside from what he was used to in Mork and Mindy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to watch a little Morgan Mitty or on Happy Days, he popped up. I think the Mork character showed he up. He did, on Happy yeah. Days. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. That was the origination. Yeah, Insomnia was fucking crazy, too. That was a good one. He was great. He really, really was, man. Definitely. Rest in peace to one of the greats. But I know you're a big Tom Hanks guy. Forrest Gump, you think, is the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> I always get great for this, man. I, 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 I I'm always like I'll argue with somebody, you know what I mean? I think it's the I think it's the greatest American movie ever made, you know. <laughs> and I'm always like we can talk about it. And I understand that like The Godfather is incredible, but I have a different like set of terms. I think you can't watch The Godfather with your grandmother or with your kid, you know, because it's bloody and it's gory and it's long and it's confusing. I love it, but like I couldn't tell you all the characters in that movie. Whereas like Forrest Gump, you know, you can watch it with everybody. I mean, there's a little stuff in there that's a little, you know, racy or you have to explain to the young kids, but it's like a holiday movie. Like it comes on, you know, and you watch it. I also think that like you can't be the greatest movie ever if it's like a tragedy. I think like a love story is better, like a love story with comedy. That's like more universal. And I'm like, no, it can't be, you know, Godfather or Shawshank Redemption or whatever. All these movies that people are like, no, it's the greatest one. I was like, it has to be it has to be a love story. Like it has to have a good you know, ending. And then technology wise, Forrest Gump like blew people away. I don't know. There's something about, so you look at Jurassic Park. When Jurassic Park first came out, it blew everybody away because of the dinosaur. But when you watch it now, you're like, oh, no big deal. But for me, there's still something about Tom Hanks shaking JFK's hand that no matter the technology, it still kind of hits. And I don't, I mean, you know, Star Wars, when you watch the old ones, like it's cool because it's nostalgic, but the technology doesn't blow you away anymore. I don't know. There's just something about some of those pieces that still are great. And I think it's hilarious. Like I quote it all the time. I drives my family crazy. My one buddy was like, no, it's rah, 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 Americana all the time. You know, like it's America's great. And I was like, no, I was like, you're not watching the movie. America's terrible in that movie. Like Forrest just has like a heart to him. Like they're, you know, they're invading Vietnam. People are getting assassinated. Like there's, you know, a disease going around. Like Jenny gets AIDS. Like it's not pro-America by any means. It's pro like people, like American, you know, not America. So I don't know. It'll probably, it'll probably wait on me eventually. My son will probably show me something and I'll you know, convince me that it's not the best movie ever, but I'm still holding strong. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from Forrest Gump, what else is in your top five? Well, I do love The Godfather and I was watching Godfather. that show that just came out, The Offer. 
Um, it's funny, dude. Like the more I think about what my favorite movies are, I think about the time that I watched them because I think like you can't separate movies make you feel something, you know. So that first time that you watch like like Goonies is one of my favorite movies of all times because I used to watch it with my friends when I was growing up. And then I watched it with my son and showed it to him when he was probably a little too young to see it. Or like I never knew anything about the Lord of the Rings at mm -hmm. all. I was not, I never read a book, didn't know anything, was not a fantasy guy at all. And was in town visiting all my high school buddies in St. Louis. And they're like, we got to go see this movie. And I sat down and was like, like, what is this? So that night that I saw that movie, makes it one of the best movies you know that i've ever seen in terms of like watching them over and over again they they kind of they get replaced a lot like i loved 1917 when it came out just because i had never seen a movie like that a couple of years ago the way it was directed um the first time i ever watched the the star wars episode four like if you forget all the other ones it's incredible because it's this fantasy that you don't know anything about and the way that they tell it like halfway through it um but Godfather, the first Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm a big Paul Newman fan. I like The Hustler a lot. I really like that that 1917. Goonies is great. Um, Friday, I think is probably yeah. I, I've cool. done my research. I saw a video of you Did talking you? about Friday being a main. My cousin put that up. I yeah. mean, <laughs> Friday Friday might be one of the best comedies ever. It's so good. It's so good. And yeah, I mean, you can Google like Eric Nenninger talking about Friday to hear all my takes on it, but. That movie, man, I mean, talk about like comedians in it, great one-line quotes. The plot is about nothing. And then once you move to Los Angeles, it just makes a, like total more sense. Like you get everybody's caricatures and I don't know, it's goofy. I love it. I love it. Like I love Anchorman, Caddyshack, you know, some like it hot, which is like a really, really old Marilyn Monroe movie, but I'm an easy laugher. So Friday just gets me every time. Every time. Is it true that you got to tell Bernie Mac, Lord have mercy? I did. I bumped into him when I was working on Malcolm in the Middle. He was doing uh, the Bernie Mac show. And I came down the hallway and like bumped into him, you know, as we were turning the corner. And the first thing that came out of my mouth was like, Claude, have mercy, which is a line of his from Friday. And he just sort of laughed. and was like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and I, I felt awesome. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I just hit him with the line. I don't know if he gets that all the time or not, you know, or if he knew what I was saying, but I think he did. You know, he knows his own stuff. That was pretty oh, cool. He was a funny guy too, man. Have you ever seen his first live at the Apollo stand-up? No, I haven't. I'll have to check that out. Dude, it's so classic. He comes out to the Apollo stage wearing pants that have an airbrushed picture of himself on them. He's got all white pants and he's wearing a picture of himself on the pants. And his opening line is, I'm not scared of you motherfuckers. Because the Apollo's notorious for being like a hard room. Lauren Hill got oh, booed off stage there. Always, yeah. And he walks out there and the first thing he says is, I'm not scared of you motherfuckers. It's really great. And he's got <laughs> his own face on his pants. <laughs> That's classic. Yeah, it's really great. All right, rest in peace to Bernie Mac, one of the yeah. greatest to to ever do it in comedy. But I know comedy is a, a huge thing for you. But you you start out in elementary school in the plays. You were an innkeeper for the nativity. Yeah, <laughs> going I was doing on the plays you do in high school too yeah. as well. Yeah, the first play I ever did was a Christmas uh, you know story because I was at a Catholic elementary school and I was the innkeeper that uh, didn't let Jesus and Mary or Mary and Joseph stay at the time. Jesus was still in her belly, um, so that's always my joke. I'm like, I was the innkeeper that told them to keep it moving. Um, and then my schools had good theater programs. I was really, really fortunate. My high school had a great theater program. Um, I was playing football and basketball right. at the time. Um, but then I went to the school play and it was this funny, goofy farce 
uh, called Noises Off, and I was just blown away by it. But they, we were really lucky because they funded the theater program like they do a sport. So they had all the sets and the props and like you could get away with doing it and it was cool. Like you could be popular doing plays in the school. Um, and so I just, I, I, I fell in love with it or I was already in love with it and had access to it. And, and so I just tried to pull off both. So I played football, um, played basketball until my senior year and then did the fall play the, and then the spring we had plays that we would do too. And I just did as much as I could, you know, um, it was great. It was great. What position did you play for football? I was a linebacker and a guard. So I played both ways. I try to tell my son, again, I got a 16-year-old son. I try to tell him, like, it was a small school. Like, it was pretty much no cut. We probably had, like, 40 kids on the team. Um, and, you know, maybe 22 that were actually playing. But there was a point where I was pl- – I never left the field, like, because I was on every special team and playing both ways, which was brutal because you're just exhausted. But we had small guards who, like – pulled and did traps and then I played either middle or outside linebacker but then I would be on the punt team and the kickoff team and the kick return team and the punt return team and I just stand on that field playing all day I was sore back then yeah linebacker and guard but you decided that you were going to audition for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts yeah it was kind of a serendipitous story uh, Washington University in um, St. Louis, Missouri is a, is a really nice school, like borderline Ivy League school. They're a D3 school for football. So I was kind of loosely rec- recruited to play linebacker for them. And they have a pretty good theater program. So I was like, great, I'll go to Wash U. Um, my counselor was like, you know, your grades are just good enough to get in. Okay, cool. Um, and I'll major in theater and I'll play football. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, I did not get accepted to the school. My grades were not good enough to get in. And it was the only school that I applied to. Um, so after that, I was like, oh, wow, I got, I got nothing. I got to figure something out. And I just realized that no matter where I was, I was going to be an actor, even if it was on the weekends as a hobby, you know, I I had no plans to give this up. So I was like, all right, I'll just, I'll just go all in. I'll just do this for real. I'll go to a school. There's another really good drama school in St. Louis called Webster university. And I was going to audition for that and go to that. And it's like a conservatory school is what they call it, where all they do is train actors and singers and, you know. Something like uh, uh, NYU or the Juilliard School. Um, so in order to get ready for that, I decided to audition for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which sounds a lot more prestigious than it actually is, at least the West Coast campus. The East Coast campus, they have a New York campus, which is one of the oldest acting schools in the in the country. The West Coast one is like the California cousin. It was made in the 70s, you know, and you... you you could get accepted. It's very, very good training, but not as in demand. So you can't get it. I didn't know this at the time. I thought I was auditioning for the oldest school in the country. So no chance I'm going to get in. I'll do it as practice. Then I'll go and I'll go to Webster University in St. Louis. I got into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I was like, oh my gosh, this is my dream. I can go and study like for real. Um, and I had a choice actually to pick between the East Coast and the West Coast. But I had a friend going to um, Pomona College out here and his family was in San Diego. And so I was like, all right, I'll go to California. And, and, you know, packed up and jumped in a car with a guy who was also headed out that way. Uh, oh, is be... this the story of he was playing oldies and you're playing hip hop? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That was the worst. Turner loved oldies the whole time. And we drove three days from St. Louis to California. And all we listened to was like doo-wop radio. And then when he would fall asleep, I would like try to sneak some Tribe Called Quest. Something that was <laughs> mellow. You're like, you can't, like, you can't just like throw on Wu-Tang. So I had to like sneak in like something that was like kind of chill. And he would wake up and be like, what's playing? But it was his car. And we just met, you know, needless to say, that roommate situation didn't last for very long. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you were coming up during the golden age of hip hop. So what are your thoughts on what your kids are listening to now? Because hip hop's completely changed. 
it's completely changed, but um, I actually like it. And it was funny when I was, yeah, I, I think I kind of grew up in the golden age, like that 96, 97 was amazing. But my friends, my two buddies were music producers and DJs. Um, my one friend, uh, Rob Fullstone goes by DJ Crucial and he makes music for a little record company called um, F5 Records out of St. Louis. So he would always just give me music like anything that I knew about that wasn't like, you know, the chronic or something that was massive. He would just be like, Hey, everybody listen to this mixtapes and stuff like that. So that was how I knew about music. And now when I have a kid um, who's a teenager, who's very, very into music as well, like knows, knows it all. He throws me all the stuff now too. So it's kind of like my relationship with music is the same. I just basically sit back and, 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 you know, leech off of other things, but I like, I like the new stuff a lot now. I mean, some of it, mumble rap obviously i'm an old head so i'm just kind of like uh. yeah but, um, but he you know I, I mean i don't know if kendrick is new or not but like I, I think he's probably in my top five you know anyway but i like jay cole i like the baby i like travis scott i wouldn't know any of these guys if it wasn't for my son james you know <laughs> playing them for me so there's some there's some good ones out there you know Definitely. now now do you kind of give back and throw to your son these are the guys i listen to and say i listen to trap called quest and these guys growing up yeah, absolutely. Like, it was funny. That was how we connected a little bit is that I would play stuff for him and tell him about it. Like I was playing Liquid Swords, that Jizza track okay, Jizza, for him, yeah. kind of like showing him that that steady, continuous beat underneath it is similar to what he's listening to now. And he was like, oh, okay, I kind of see that. And I would like, you know, explain to him why Wu-Tang was so big or what happened when Eminem first came out. Because, in you know, in 99, like I was just getting into college when my name is came out. So I like, I'd be like, man, you don't even understand what this did. We didn't know what was going on. And like the beat was so weird. And now he's listening to him, you know, what's that collab song with him, Drake, uh, Lil Wayne, Forever. that one. So like my, my son will play that one and, and I'll listen to it. And it's like some people that I kind of grew up with with some new people. And we both kind of agree that that might be one of the greatest collab songs ever, you know, or I might play like Outcast for him and tell him how Southern rap sort of came up and, and you know, what Andre 3000 did. And there was one time where I walked him through the Beastie Boys because, of course, I'm a white kid from St. Louis. So that was on the, <laughs> the playlist. But I like I was like, you're going to listen to one track from all their albums and just hear how they kind of like progressed, you know, and he just listens. But I get a chance to talk and, you know, we'll go over it. It's good. It's the way we bond. But now he's playing new stuff for me, which is crazy. And I love it. No, it, it, it's two totally different eras, but you've you've accepted it. That's yeah, that's good. yeah. I, it keeps me young. He definitely like keeps me young, you know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I want to get into getting further into this now because you, you're going to college, and then eventually you you find your agent after getting out to Pasadena, and the agent that took you on, I know she was nice, but she felt bad for kids in between like the 18 and 19 range once you're yeah. on the cusp of getting into the adulthood. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. She was a, a kid agent at an agency that had adults. And so she represented little ones all the way up to around, like you said, 18 or 19 years old. And there's sort of a dead zone in there because you come out of college, you're not young enough to be like a little kid actor, which there aren't that many of, and you're not old enough to have any kind of credits. So I um, mailed her a letter, um, actually a physical letter that said, uh, hey, my friend recommended you to me. I was hoping to come in for a meeting. I just graduated, blah, blah, blah. And she um, she called me in for an audition because of that. She felt, you know, these kids are sort of in this dead zone. So it was a little bit of a break, a little bit of a nice woman looking out for somebody. I auditioned in her office at Hollywood and Vine. It was very Hollywood. Her name's Chester Henry. Um, she's not an agent anymore. And um, I think I remember bringing her like the most 
brutal, traumatic monologue, you know, like tears and dead baby or something, you know, from, from acting school. Like I'm just going to show her everything I got right in this like sunny office at Hollywood and Vine. And I just remember her nodding and, you know, and I, I worked on it in school. So it was, it was good. And then she was like, okay, can you now read this uh, commercial that I have right here for like Totino's pizza rolls or something? And I was like, yeah, Chester, Totino's pizza rolls are, you know, hot and fresh or something. And she's like, great, we'll start working together. And then that's the the agent that I was with when I got the X-Files and ER and CSI and Jeepers Creepers too, actually, yeah. all the way up through that. So that was crazy. This is a perfect transition here to Jeepers Creepers too, because I remember the first time I saw it, it was on Sci-Fi. I think I was in maybe second grade at that time when I first saw this. Who's letting you watch Jeepers Creepers in second grade, bro? Like <laughs> <laughs> My grandfather, my mother always says that he... Rest in peace. He was on my father's side. He would have to pay for my psychiatric therapy because he's always showing me all these horror movies when I was younger. And I know you're not a big horror guy, but what's crazy, because when I do October shows, I usually interview a lot of horror actors and people who've been in horror movies such as yourself. I know, they, but you you have a lot in common with them because a lot of them don't like horror movies, but they're in them and they really pull off their performances such as yourself and Scott. Oh, yeah, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, I'm not a horror movie fan at all. I don't really yeah. watch them ever. Like... I don't like suspense that much, but being You're a thriller in one, guy though. I know you like thrillers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They're like the psychological thrillers are always cool. You know what I mean? I like those um like cop shows where they're trying to maybe catch somebody. I just started that Dahmer TV show last night on oh, Netflix. Geez. That one is rough. Probably because it's real. That's <laughs> yeah. what's really crazy. Um, but no, I never watched horror movies. That's interesting. You say that other people are like that, that they'll be in them but not like them. But once you're there, obviously it's a movie, so you're excited to be in it. And the guy who was playing the creeper, like the oh makeup. Jonathan Breck, yeah, 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 he was, and he was in the first one too. The makeup and everything is like so legit that you don't have to act too much. Like we were on a school bus in the middle of nowhere at three a.m., and he was standing outside the trailer, you know, the bus, looking, you know, like the creeper, and so it was pretty easy to like fall into fear and everything. But I, I, I don't even really watch that one that much, you know. Wow. Like, yeah. I know you I, told I, me you revisited the clips yesterday and it was, it's yeah. been a while, but it's always going to be on like on October. I know it's going to be on sci-fi soon. Yeah. They run it on sci-fi all the time, which is cool. No, I don't watch that. I've never seen Saw. I've never seen Hostel. I've never seen like House of a Thousand Corpses or any of those <laughs> at all, man. None of them. Uh, I'm surprised you, you don't like any of the, the comedy horror crossovers like Creep Show, Evil Dead 2. See, I, don't, I think I would never even know that they were a comedy one. I would see Evil Dead 2 and be like, no. Nope. <laughs> but you're a big horror movie fan, right? I saw that. But I guess it was the October shows, but you've done a lot of interviews with guys like that. And Yeah, I've done, I've done a lot of interviews with the, the main horror actors. And, you know, I wanted to shed light on, on what you've done because I think your role, you, you have the best part in the movie besides the creeper, in my opinion. Nice, you, thank you. you. You take over the bus. I mean, yeah. You're ready to throw everyone off it. <laughs> Mutiny, right? <laughs> and then just run scared right when that thing comes. It's a funny story. When when Scott, the guy that I play, gets um, pinned to the tree, I figured as like a kid, he would just be freaking out and would be like, oh my God, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. And I pitched to the director that he would just start profusely apologizing to um oh d d double d yeah Gar garakai mutambiro is his name um and i was just like i i think he would start being like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and the director was like yes absolutely please do that and you know so that made me feel great i was just like oh i got a little uh little you know ad lib in here but it made perfect sense that, that before you were trying to take care of yourself especially for scotty now you're like anything to save my life 
And I just started profusely apologizing to him. <laughs> trying to get that knife out, man. What a sucker. <laughs> Indeed, you got the knife out at the last second, and then you get taken second. away. And then boom, gone. That was wild, man. Uh, but you we'll fit perfectly for the role because of your experience as playing basketball and football as a jock. And I know you were going into your auditions cocky already, I heard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I felt like I... Well, you know, when you start to get a little bit of work early on, you think I can I can't be touched. Like this is easy, you know. I mean, even like, you know, I've signed a series regular contract with Malcolm in the middle, and then I was getting cleared to do a movie. And, you know, I know that everyone says that it's hard to do, but not for me, you know, like, and I probably had a sports mentality towards it. I would just outbeat everybody, you know. Um, and so I was definitely going into auditions super cocky, which was a lot of the characters that I play. Like even to this day, I play overconfident, cocky characters. I was doing an audition this morning where a guy was called for being overconfident and cocky and was going to get arrested for killing a girl. Um, but I think that that was part of kind of growing up. You know what I mean? Like where do you keep confidence and where do you let cockiness go? You know, you don't want to be second guessing yourself by any means, but at the same time, you don't want to be like, I'm untouchable. Um, after... A couple of years after Jeepers Creepers and Malcolm in the Middle, I kind of hit like a, a plateau where I wasn't working like a slump for a while. And I think that that was humbling for me. Um, I ended up getting into a project called Generation Kill, which was an HBO miniseries. Um, By the creators of The Wire. Yeah, David Simon and Ed Burns. And that was like really, it was a great job. It's the job that I'm most proud of. But I think it came to me right when it was supposed to come to me. Um, and at the same time was also like healing in the sense of, you can leave that old cocky kid behind, still be a confident actor, work with these great people, but you don't need to um, have blinders on that you can't be touched. It was like a, it was all meant to be, but um, but no, that was some growing pains there, you know, because I, I it was easy for me, you know, like you know, it's, it, that sounds cocky, but like I did come out, audition, and get parts. I wish it maybe it had been a little harder, you know, um, because maybe I would have learned that lesson a little earlier. But at the same time, it was good to get rolling and, and get some parts and then learn it in my mid to late 20s is when I finally realized, you know, I had to um, keep my eye on the ball, stay hungry, keep trying, never get, you know, too comfortable. That's all good stuff for an actor, like it is for an athlete, too. And, yeah, you can always be knocked down. You can always hit the wall. But it's always important to get back up and you got back up. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like I said, man, even even when I didn't get accepted to watch you, I knew I was going to be an actor. So I just got to figure out where, where they're going to let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> but how was the premiere? Because I heard that there was a premiere for Jeepers Creepers 2. It was a home run yeah. at the box office again. I know the first one was, but this was another one. It was full on like movie premiere, which I had never been to before. Like um, it was at a theater on Hollywood Boulevard, red carpet, like all decked out. I mean, I was just overwhelmed by it you know because it was a it was an mgm movie in movie theaters you know um and so it was great it was great did the red carpet rode in a limo you know i got my mom to ride in the limo with me she came to a she came to the, the red carpet and she was lined up behind the photographers like calling out my name because everyone's saying when you line up for those things they're always like eric 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 they want you to look at their camera and then i hear this voice behind saying eric john which is my middle name eric john eric john and i was like eric john and my mom was up there probably with like a disposable camera <laughs> like <you know. laughs> And I just smiled and it was like everything, all the dreams that you had when you were a little kid, you know, playing the, the nativity story and your mom is on the red carpet and 
my wife, I was with my wife at the time and she's there and, and all these guys. It was, it was amazing, man. Did you get to keep any props from the movie? I know sometimes you'll be able I to usually keep the jacket. Steal, yeah, I usually do steal a prop from everything that I did. That was more what I would do in plays because it was easier to get away with them. <laughs> but um, no, I don't have anything. I wish I had the jacket or something from Jeepers Creepers. I do have a school bus that the um, director signed for me and I still keep that one. And like as my projects got bigger, I couldn't actually steal stuff from them. I have some stuff from Generation Kill because we had a bunch of Marine gear. So like I have a notebook that I was using in a pen. Um, I kept the card, uh, my business card from Mad Men. Like okay. I sort of stuck that one away. Um, I forget my character's name right now, but it was whatever he was from. And it was set it on the card and I handed it to Don Draper and they gave me three or four of them, you know, to use. And one of them disappeared from the set. So, but a lot of actors do that. A lot of actors are always stealing things. So <laughs> I don't feel bad. <laughs> I want to dig deeper into the Scott character because you eventually you placed Scott again and another character named Scott on one day at a time. But That's you right. used to keep a, a notebook of questions to answer about your character. So what were the questions that you were answering about Scott and Jeepers Creepers too? You know, it's funny when I was younger. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea with an actor is that you want to get to know them as well as you know yourself. And what I kind of learned in drama school and sort of figured out was that there's a ton of stuff that, you know, like Max knows about Max that may never come up, but it kind of makes you relax and behave like a real person if you know all that stuff. So I just figured that I could, if I could answer a hundred different questions about my person, then that would just flesh out more because I know I can answer them about myself. So, I mean, it would be everything from like, you know, real deep stuff, like, is the person religious? Uh, does this person lie? Uh, does this person uh, like to be lied to? Would they cheat on their girlfriend? Um, what music do they listen to? Are they a Beatles guy or an Elvis guy? Are they a hip hop guy? Or are they, you know what I mean, a, a folk singer guy? Um, do they like sports? Do they not like sports? Any, anything that popped in my head, any question whatsoever that was pretty simple, you know? So like for Scott, you know, some of them would be like for Scotty Braddock on Jeepers Creepers, like obviously he's a sports guy. Like he probably likes classic rock or like, you know, Led Zeppelin or like, I wouldn't picture him as a hip hop guy, you know, <laughs> just little things like that. Like, would he cheat on his girlfriend? Definitely. Like, does he lie? Of course Scott lies. Does he like being lied to? No, you know, is he competent? Is he not? But if you can just run through all of those questions um, for anybody, it just makes it so that you're not faking it as much because you know that much about him. So I, I mean, I don't do it as diligently as I used to because it's kind of automatic now. Um, then I'll think that way. But every once in a while, I'll go back and just be like, I wonder what that guy would do here, you know, or I wonder what that guy would do with this situation. And it has nothing to do with the actual script, but it's just getting to know them as well as you know yourself, you know, so that you can think like them when you need to. Yeah, that, Scotty would definitely lie, wouldn't he? Son of a bitch. <laughs> Uh, 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 Scott, uh, uh, Scott the Bobo is what I call him in one day at a time because that was what uh, <laughs> Justin Machado's character called him, uh, Scott the Bobo. I don't think he would. He's probably like pretty straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like he listens to like uh, Elvis Costello or something corny or like <laughs> uh, Sugar. What is that? A uh, Sugar Ray? That's like a Scott kind of music. Uh -huh. That was a great show. No, definitely. When we're getting into Scott here, what would you say was your favorite line of dialogue? Because you took over with Cheapers Creepers, I said before. My favorite line of dialogue on Cheapers yeah. Creepers? Oh, man. Uh oh, you want to play Cock of the Walk now, bro? Oh, yeah. <laughs> bro. Or or that profusely apologizing, you know. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know. But yeah, I think when he steps up to Double D, he says, you want to play Cock of the, wall now? Cock of the Walk now? 
bro. Yeah. <laughs> so bad. So bad. Just that light, little, subtle racist. <laughs> yeah. No, you could definitely tell that. And then in the end, it's like, no, it doesn't matter anymore. Save yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. We had a basketball net on set that in between setups and things when we had long time, we would go at it. And the guy that plays Double D um, and, and I would go at it. Like we were we were the best players in the cast. You know I mean? Not, that's not saying much, but man, the two of us would just either in three on three or one on one. Garakai Mutambiro was his name. And I just remember like playing as hard as we possibly could because it was a basketball team on the, in the movie. And I guess they just threw it up for us, man. That was fun. I'd love to play with him again. I don't see him often enough. Yeah. Uh, apparently he sucked and you want him to change the flat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, but no, just that's a classic right there, a horror classic. It's a great sequel too, because when you look at horror movies, once you get into the sequels, it's like, oh boy, here we go, we go downhill. Yeah. But no, but that's definitely up there for for me and for our viewers. I know it's a top sequel. Yeah, they definitely amped it up, and it was kind of a cool premise. The idea that everyone's stuck on a bus. The, um, the writer director Victor Salva said that he always wanted. I guess there's a Hitchcock movie. I'm not positive where they're stuck on a boat or he had the idea that he would basically be contained, you know, like a one room thing, but something like that, where it was a mobile thing, you know, mobile vehicle that had been shut down and everybody stuck there and the pressure builds and one of them breaks and you can kind of see how people reveal themselves through, you know, the situation that they're in, which actually is a cool part of horror movies. And I, and I do appreciate that, that you're in this otherworldly position. So you have to respond in the way you respond. But that was the whole idea. He always wanted to have some movie where they were stuck in, not even like a warehouse or a room or a mansion, but like in a very, very close quarters where you can't get out and the pressure's building. And then that was kind of cool. Um, the Minxie character would have the visions that they had done in the first one. So we had sort of a you know window into what the situation we were dealing with was um, so that that just tips everybody over their stress just finally breaks them and you know scotty like shows his true colors and wants to save himself and the rest of them start crying they take off they you know but yet that idea of a pressure cooker was a cool one i think that they did a good job for the sequel um and then using that creeper character which is a pretty cool iconic character that's scary you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> he picked you uh, out though when he was upside down that's a classic scene well that's a you know disputed who he was actually looking at <laughs> <laughs> we'll see Oh boy, but one day at a time that I mentioned, Mad Men, Generation Kill, you went to South Africa for that for a while. Yeah, they shot Generation Kill in three countries in Southern Africa. So it was South Africa, um, uh, Namibia, which is on the Western side of South Africa, and then Mozambique, which is on the Eastern side. So we were in Namibia, then a little desert town in South Africa, then over to Mozambique, and then back to Johannesburg. I mean, talk about a dream, you know, as an actor, you audition for this big project, it comes from these huge you know, creators, and then they're going to fly you down to Africa. It was six and a half, seven months down there, which was a long stretch. My son was one and a half at the time. So I was sort of pulled between the two um, worlds that I was living, but I never expected to be in that part of the world. You know, I didn't know that I was going to be with that group of guys. I'm all still friends with all of them today um, and working on an incredible show, but you were also getting to pretend to be a Marine. You know, we had decommissioned Humvees and, you know, real M4 rifles and, and all the gadgets and stuff. And we were working out all the time with the trainers and living in a hotel room that was all in a, in a hotel that was all us. Like we took over essentially a Howard Johnson. It was like this big barracks, you know, constant music playing all the time, constantly working out, you know, just feeling your alpha maleness. Um, 
And then we got to, you know, do pretend to be Marines with trucks and guns and stuff. And what was really good that they had three actual reconnaissance Marines, three of them that were actually in the campaign that's portrayed in the miniseries. And they would consistently remind us that this was not how it really was. This is Hollywood as fuck. Like, like you guys are going home to your beds every night. There's espresso machines around the corner. They're like, it's the exact same minus the death and the danger. You know, So that kept us grounded and humbled a little bit when we thought that we were real Marines, you know? And, and the creator of The Wire with David Simon told you, could you make this more real? And that kind of hit yeah. different for you at a time as well. Yeah, the audition that I had for... Um, for Generation Kill was a wild one. I was actually in St. Louis, ironically, for the weekend. And my agent called me and said I had an audition on a Saturday. Um, and I remember auditioning for this project about a year before, and I knew that it was a good one. And so I got together some airline miles and I flew uh, like a 7 a.m. flight from St. Louis to Los Angeles, which sounds like something that actors do, but I didn't do anything like that at the time. Like I didn't fly in and I drove to the audition and I had a flight home, you know, for like 5 p.m. that day because I was you know, seeing family in St. Louis. And I was just like, I hope when I go in there that I get to at least do it more than one time. Because a lot of times as an actor, you read it once, they say thank you and you hit the road. I was like, I flew all the way from St. Louis. So I did it once and everybody was there and it was good. And then I did it again. And my character was a bit of a blowhard. You know, he was a little over the top and stuff. Um, and everybody was kind of nodding and they kind of looked at David Simon, who I didn't know at the time. And he said that line to me. He said, you know, we're not doing you any favors by calling this guy Captain America. That was his nickname. And it was actually a dig. Like, that's what all the soldiers called him. No one said that to him in his face because he actually was a captain. If you said that to him, you would get in trouble. Um, but he thought that he was in a movie. He goes, we're not doing you any favors by calling this character Captain America. Um, but this is a real person, you know. Um, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I felt this responsibility to this actual guy and to this project that was about real people that I was sort of like faking it and kind of like selling it short by acting. You know, I, I mean, in that moment, in between the second time I did it and the third time I did it, I felt like I had let this guy down in some weird way. Cause it's one thing when you're playing a character, but when you're playing a real guy, you sort of feel this like responsibility to at least be honest about it. And all these real people. And then on top of that, they were service members. They had actually served. They had seen combat. Like, So whatever that was that he said to me and the way he said it and how I felt, um, I did it again. You know, in acting terms, you ground it, you make it more real. But I think also something kind of opened up in me in a creative sense um, where I put everything into it, into these you know two little kind of short scenes. And I guess that was enough right there that they saw what they needed to see. Um, and then, you know, Alexa Fogel is the casting director of that project. And she's a big time casting director. She's great. She cast Atlanta right now um, and a bunch of other amazing things. She loved it. David Simon loved it. Um, they called me about a week later and they're like, you know, you're being considered. Get ready. It goes to Africa for from, you know, May to December. And I was like, whoa, changed my life. I mean, in, in some sense, you know, in that little moment. But. I don't know. I'm glad that he said it and I'm glad that it responded the way it did. Who knows? What what piece of film or TV are you most proud of throughout your career? Because I feel as though that was a life-changing experience, as you just said, and something that you took to heart with that role. But if you could think of one in particular, what do you think defines it, Eric Nenninger? It, it definitely is Generation Kill. Mm -hmm. is the one that I'm most proud of um, because of the friendships that I made, the experiences that I had, both on set and off set. 
um, the project that we did, the people that we were portraying. Um, I bump into occasionally people that will recognize me from it, or they are servicemen that have watched it. And that always like makes you feel more proud just because there's something about service guys, there's something about Marines, you know, and they're like, yeah, that was really accurate. You guys nailed it. Um, and then just, um, like I said, I, I, I saw some of the guys from Generation Kill last weekend. I'm, I'm taking a trip to New York with my wife at the end of the month to see two more, uh, one of the guys in a show with two more of the guys. He's doing a play out there. Um, so it's these lifelong bonds that I've had. This was 15 years ago that we made it. Um, and you don't normally see people after the show ends. So there was just something really special about it that I'm most proud about it. It was the biggest experience, um, you know, professionally. It's right up there with like the birth of my kids and my wedding and stuff as like big wow. moments in my life. I'm proud of a lot of things that I did, but that's the number one, definitely. No, I could definitely tell that, especially about the passion. I'm surprised because you chose Pasadena. Well, you made the right choice in the end. I agree. You got to go out to L.A. if you want to get in the, mm -hmm. in, in the film. But I'm surprised you didn't go to New York because you're such a big theater guy in Broadway yeah. and you like the stage and the applause from the audience and seeing yeah. them out in the, the hallway when you, you're done. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. And I miss it a little bit, too, because I haven't had time to do it as much. But that was always like. That was the ego thing too, a little bit though, was when you would come off the stage and you'd go into the hallway when I was in high school and like be like, hey, uh, I'm kind of a big deal. Um, <laughs> but there is definitely something about like the crowd that you can't get away from. I miss doing theater. I miss doing plays. I want to get back to it now. Um, it takes a lot of more of a time commitment. And so I was, you know, working more in film and, and television mainly and, and raising my family. Um, but it was interesting when I had the choice between the New York and the LA campus, because I feel like I probably am more of a stage guy in terms of what I would want to do. Um, but I, I, I think it was moving out of my hometown. I wanted to go somewhere where I had a friend. So I chose LA and then that was working. So I never had to, I never had to switch it up. And there's theater out here too. It just doesn't, it, it's not, you can't make a living doing it as much as you can. Um, but who knows, maybe, you know, maybe New York is in my future somewhere once I get these kids out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get prepare. this Jake Cole fan out of the house and this next one. <laughs> uh, better prefer you gotta get your big coat on to come out here. The cold weather, yeah, right? That's the other thing too is I may not want to. <laughs> Can't stand it. <laughs> gotta get your Canada goose on. Shit, it's like sixty-five here now, and I'm like, what is happening? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but St. Louis to L.A. like the Rams. Are you a Rams fan? Yeah, that was kind of weird, man, because. The Rams, all of a sudden, St. Louis had a football team, and then they were in the Super Bowl, and they won, and then they should have won the next one. Like, out of nowhere, we were like, what the hell's happening? Then the Rams sucked for 10 years. Like, they were terrible. And then they, the way that they left, like, you know, they sort of dogged the city. Cronky, the owner of the Rams, kind of, like, dogged the city a little bit and sort of manipulated some money out of them. You know, it's all kind of like political, but there was a lot of tax dollars that he sort of walked away with. So and then he said that St. Louis was a terrible town that never supported the Rams. So that's all my family. And my friends were like, we supported the Rams forever. Like, F you, Stan Kroenke. Um, and then he moved to L.A. and I was like, I don't care. You know, I'm a, I'm a St. Louis Cardinal fan. I'm not a Dodger fan. You know, they have a football team. No big deal. But then my son looks up at me and he goes, Dad, we got a football team. <laughs> like, we got a team, Dad. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> so I take him to see a game. We go to see a game at the Coliseum, and he's all excited in a jersey and everything. He's probably 10 at the time. And the Rams fumble the opening kickoff, and the Falcons score immediately. And this is when the Falcons were really good, too. And I, and I put my arm around him. I was like, welcome to being a Rams fan. I was like, as much as they seem like they're great, they've been terrible. 
And then they fire Jeff Fisher, they get Sean McVay, and now winning cures everything. So, yeah, I'm a Rams fan, man, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) I am. But congratulations on winning the Super Bowl last year. Yeah, that was dope, man. That was fun. And we went down to – I got to go to the stadium for regular season. I didn't make it to the game. Uh, But then we went down to that parade, which is the uh, first time I've done a parade with my son. Second one in L.A. that I've done. I did a Lakers one when they were first winning their championships. But that was cool. That was cool to take them down there and, like, walk in the streets. And we saw Aaron Donald, you know, flexing on the bus and just, like, celebrating a championship with L.A. people. You know, it was title town here for a little bit here, man. That was that was crazy. It was. You know, you're lucky. It could be worse. You could be a New York fan with <laughs> my trio here of Jets, Mets, and Knicks. Brutal. Jets, Mets, and Knicks. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, the Garden is wonderful. I've never been to it. You know, like, you got storied stadiums. But, whew. That, uh, I don't know if you you probably don't remember it, but the NLCS between the Mets and the Cardinals in 2006 was a Game 7 epic, like, one of the best ones. I was listening to some announcers talk about it ever, uh, maybe last week, and they were saying that that might have been one of the best NLCSs of all time. Like, it was in New York, was Game 7. Scott Rowland hit what was like a guaranteed home run that got robbed by the Mets uh, center fielder or left fielder. And then Wainwright, Adam Wainwright, who was closing at the time, struck out, I think it was Beltron maybe, um, in the bottom of the ninth. Like, I remember freaking out about that. That was an epic <laughs> series. But that was, sorry, I don't mean to like. <laughs> no, no, these are these these are moments that you, you won't forget in sports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the ones. And I'm out here in St. Louis and all my buddies are in, I'm out here in LA and all my buddies are at home in St. Louis and we were texting or whatever we were doing at the time for 2006, you know, just like freaking out. That should be fun. But you're working on winning time right now at the Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, man. Tell me about this because I know you're at the announcer's table. Yeah, so I play um, Keith Erickson, who was the color commentator for the Lakers uh, out here on KCLA, the radio and the local broadcast with Chick Hearn. And Chick Hearn was like the iconic Lakers basketball announcer. Um, He invented terms like slam dunk and alley-oop and things like that and um, announced for the Lakers for like 40 years. So from 19 to 79 through about 88, Keith Erickson was the color commentator. Um, And this show is so big and so legit that they cast every single role as accurately as possible. Um, So I kind of look like Keith Erickson. They put me in a wig. They put me in some like 70s clothes. Um, And then I get to basically sit courtside while they recreate all of these great Lakers matchups. So in the first season, they were doing the Sixers and the Lakers who played in the NBA championship, Dr. J, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And you're just, you're sitting courtside because again, they, they do the whole thing. They make a real basketball court. They put the forum emblems down. Everybody's there. and, And you're watching this guy in a Magic Johnson Jersey standing next to this guy in a Julius Irvin Jersey and they got wigs on and they got, you know, their talks, they get basketball doubles and they're going up and down. Michael Cooper's there. And like, I mean, it's incredible. I love being a part of it. And um, Erickson was, um, was amazing. He was an incredible athlete. Like I had no idea about this guy. If you grew up in LA, I guess you knew him from the radio, but I didn't know anything about him. He um, played on the UCLA championship teams with John Wooden and with Kareem. Um, He was on a triple scholarship at UCLA for basketball, volleyball, and baseball. And he was on the like 1968 U.S. Olympic volleyball team won a gold medal there and then was on the Lakers in the 72 when they won a championship with Jerry West, uh, Elgin Baylor, and actually Pat Riley too. So Keith Erickson was a small forward shooting guard. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I got hired to play that and, and it's great. Like you, Spencer Garrett plays Chick Hearn and he's got him down like perfect. And I basically the, the bit with Chick Hearn is that he didn't want his color commentator to talk and ruin it. He was so good on his own. 
that he didn't need it. So a lot of the stuff that we do is me about to speak and he cuts me off. <laughs> so I don't really have many <laughs> words. Erickson eventually became really good and he did talk like, you know, they're, they're doing it for dramatic effect. And he actually went on to CBS and did start doing the national broadcast. But a lot of the stuff in the first season, especially when my guy comes in is me about to speak and him cutting me off. So <laughs> we're doing that a little bit in season two. They're making season two right now. Um, which is great. Everybody's back. John C. Riley, Adrian Brody, Jason Siegel, um, Jason Clark, who plays Jerry West, Quincy, um, uh, uh, Isaiah is playing Magic Johnson. Solomon Hughes plays Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which is crazy because the dude is like six nine anyway. He played college basketball and he looks like Kareem. Like he's not even really an actor, you know. He's just like, but I thought he killed it in the first season. They're all great guys, and the production is awesome. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to be a part of it. And looking forward to season two for sure. Have any of the Lakers from that Showtime era showed up on set at all? No, uh, Rick Fox came by one time, so okay. not quite Showtime, but a little bit of that. Um, so he was there. I don't know how much the Lakers like it because it kind of shows what was going on behind the scenes. And they, this sort of like it was written by a Sports Illustrated writer who did extensive interviews and all this stuff. You know, a lot of it was already known and stuff. But I think that they are either like, hey, let's not talk about what happened you know, outside of the court and in the locker room, or they dispute it, you know, which is, which is funny, but a lot of these people that are involved in it were, you know, one or two steps away from them. And they're like, this is how it happened. You know, even to the point, like the character that plays Norm Nixon is Norm Nixon's son, Devon Nixon, who's an actor and looks just like him and stuff. So a lot of times he's just like, dad, that's how it was. <laughs> like, <laughs> you and I both know, like, you know, you did wear that Paisley shirt, you know, or something like that. So no, I haven't seen any of the, um, the actual Lakers from the Showtime era. Um, Foxy came by though. That was pretty cool. Yeah. That was good to see He was probably looking at a part. He's an actor. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame that Kobe wouldn't be able to visit the set. Rest in peace to him, you know. I know, man. That would be whew, that would be a dream if he was able to come by. That was uh, that was tough. That was rough for everybody in Los Angeles and I think around the country. Um, I was talking to my dad. I was like, "Has anybody ever tragically died who was that great? You know, so quickly, so unexpectedly, a champion, you know, and young." And, and he he pointed out Roberto Clemente, which was before my time. Mm, Pirates. Yeah, Pirates guy and a humanitarian and a champion and stuff. But Kobe was something else just because of, you know, being a five-time champion, being an MVP, playing in the finals so much, being such a cutthroat player, like notoriously terrible to, you know, opponents and teammates, um, but also a winner, you know, the Mamba mentality. And then I think he won an Oscar, too, for a short film. Yeah, and the, guy, the guy gets out of it and he starts making, <clears throat> I think, uh, to, to basketball, right? To basketball with love or something it was called. Yeah. And he's getting into filmmaking. And it seemed like just from watching the interviews and stuff with him leading up to the to the to that tragic day, he seemed at peace with leaving basketball, which a lot of guys aren't. You know, they become announcers or, you know, they miss the game. Or Kobe seemed like he was going to transition so easily. And then we just found out that Sunday <coughs> afternoon that he was in that crash. And it was like a, a shock. You know, we went down to the Staples Center. Everyone was kind of leaving memorabilia and stuff. And they put up five or six big boards that you could sign, you know, just like thank yous and things. And people were signing the concrete um, in and around the Staples Center. Crypto.com is what it's called right now, but everyone still calls it Staples Center. Um, and you could just see like the, the city was shocked and, and you know, their hearts were broken. Um, that would have been, if he had come to set, if I got to meet Kobe Bryant, that would have been something special. Yeah. Because no, that was my era. I moved out to Los Angeles in 99. 
Oh, so they you were, were right there on the cusp yeah. with, with the Shaq and Kobe era, yeah, or them, Kobe. them playing the Sixers with AI. Yeah, well, yeah, that was an amazing. I couldn't believe that. That, that and actually, the Sixers lost to the Raptors with uh, Vince Carter in that in that yeah. Eastern Conference Finals. That was an incredible one. But I got here and they won three championships, and I was a Laker fan for life because St. Louis didn't have a team, you know. No. So I wasn't like betraying my hometown. And then yeah, all of a sudden, I'm living in Los Angeles and. Shaq and Kobe and Derek Fisher and Robert Ory and and then that second uh, two that they won with Pau Gasol, that was and Derek Fisher was still on it. That was great too. And yeah. nine and ten, those were those were amazing championships too. He was something else. Kobe was something else. Yeah, one of the greatest to ever do it. Number two, in my opinion, next to Michael Jordan. I know everyone likes to say LeBron and all these other yeah. guys, but Kobe never gets his fair share here. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, he was a killer, man. He was a killer. I know everyone's always like, who would you want to take your last shot? And you're like, man, pass anybody the ball. <laughs> like, yeah. You can't go wrong, you know? Michael, Kobe, LeBron. LeBron always impresses me with like his overall game and like the longevity of his career. Like it blows me away that he's up there in assists and like blocks and like steals in the finals and like three pointers. Like I'm just blown away that he's able to do that. But then you can always make an argument with MJ or Kobe or, you know, all of them. No, Part of the games. <laughs> <laughs> you can. Big Bang Theory, this is a big show, but you had a guest spot on that. So how's it being on the Big Bang Theory set? That was a pretty, that was a pretty surreal thing because I was a fan, you know, yeah. like I, I like easy comedies and I, you know, that's one you can just like throw on. So I've been watching it for years and years and years. And so um, when I got on it, everybody was wonderful and, and great, but it was more when I was done working that I could like hang out on that set and like sit on that couch and take pictures by the elevator. Like it was like I was on a tour of the set. I was like, let me just finish this scene over here. It was like a space uh, zero gravity thing that we were doing and I was playing an astronaut kind of guy. And then when it wrapped, my wife was there watching and the both of us went over to the set where the couch was and sort of nerded out on it. But everybody was cool, you know what I mean? Friendly, funny, nice. They've been doing it for 12 years. It's the longest running sitcom um, ever. They passed cheers for most uh, situational comedy, multi-camera comedy episodes um, with like, I don't know, 10,000 or something, who knows, like some incredible amount. So that was really iconic. And for a TV fan, I was more happy to be there as a fan than I was to be an actor. It was fine. You're also an acting coach as well. So what do you feel is all the qualifications that you have to master in the craft of acting to teach acting, you think? Um, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Like, it's funny. I learned so much teaching it, so much in addition to what I always did knowing it. Because, like, if you can explain it, then you really know it. And if you can explain it to somebody that doesn't know it, then it's clear and you really do know it. Like I can, you know, talk about acting theory or something in a real abstract way and make you just be like, I don't know what you're talking about, dude. But if I can explain it to you, then that made me a better actor. And I think like the one biggest thing that you have to do is you have to, you know, fool yourself into not knowing what the, what's going to happen next, um, which is like a little trick. And like, if you can do that while you're acting, everything else that you do beforehand will work, which is not something you can necessarily teach, except you have to be like, hey, remember when you were a kid and you were playing imagination games and you were you would fool yourself or you or you remember when you would wrap a present and then you'd unwrap it and then wrap it again and unwrap it and be surprised by it. Um, but if I, that's the hardest thing to probably teach is like fool yourself into not knowing what's going to happen next. And then after that, I think it's be incredibly curious about people and who they are and what they're about and what they do and, and the stories that they're in and why they do stuff. Like so much of when I was teaching people, it would be like, wait, hang on for a second, slow down. That was crazy. What he just did right there. Did you see that? 
Like he said, hey, have a seat. And that guy didn't sit down. Like, and stop and, and, and like get curious about that, like a little kid, you know? Because when you get really, really curious about people and what they're doing, you start to ask questions about what they're doing and why they're behaving that way. And if you can answer those questions, like we were talking about before, then hopefully you can think like the person in the situation that they're in. If you know enough about them, you can think the way that they think. And if you think the way that they think, you'll feel the feelings that they feel. Actually, my high school acting teacher taught me that. Um, and so even 25 years later, I'm still working from that mentality. If you think the character's thoughts, you'll feel the character's emotions. But it's hard to think like another person. You got to know everything about them, what they value, what they love, what they're scared of, you know. And you got to look at the story that they gave you with the curiosity of a kid. You know, why did they do that? Why did they get so angry right there? You know, well, this person was being mean to them and they, you know, don't like them being mean to them because they got a promotion instead of them. And you're like, oh, stop for a second. Think about what that would be like. You know, you're uh, you're on a bus with all of your teammates and you guys lost a game. So you're already pissed off at this guy. You guys just went through a whole year of high school and, you know, Double D got the start instead of uh, Scotty. So no, no, you're already mad at him. Now there's some crazy fucking creature that's coming after you guys. And you have no allegiance to that guy. You already hated him. You already wanted to sell him out, right? So what do you think when now he's, you know, potentially smile at him? You think, I don't like that guy anyway. We should get him off that bus, you know? And so like, and then hopefully if you think about it clearly enough, it'll come off um, real. It'll come off that you're not faking it. Like with um, Captain America and Generation Kill, I think I, I acted it really, really well the first two times in the auditions. And I think I probably lived through it the third time. And that's what you're always going for, you know? So, I mean, it, if I could say one thing to, to an actor, I'd be like, learn absolutely everything you can about this person so you can think for them in the situation that they're in. And then try your damnedest to pretend like you don't know what's going to happen next, you know? And be incredibly curious about everything that goes on people places and stories no, I, just that you know it's easy everyone can do it and then have comedic timing too like make sure you hit the jokes yeah. <laughs> and hold still <laughs> who's an up-and-coming actor that you've had the chance to give some pointers to or teach that you notice that oh he's gonna be he's gonna be he's one of the stars in the making i'm trying to think like people that i work with you know one of the guys, and I didn't necessarily give pointers to him, but we were colleagues, is um, Jay Ellis, who was just in Top Gun Maverick and was on Insecure. I'm not, I'm not by any means his acting coach. We were acting colleagues and we studied together at the same uh, studio. And so he would give me pointers and I would give him pointers and he would tell, you know, um, but you could kind of see that he just had like a, a, a hunger and uh, attention to detail um, and like a humble swagger to him, which is a cool way to put it. Like he had that combination of both things. Um, and you could kind of see that Jay was uh, gonna gonna do some incredible acting, and I hope that he gets even bigger parts than he had in Top Gun Maverick. Maverick was, um, you know, fun, cool jet flying. You know, didn't have a lot of like character for him necessarily to be doing. Um, so that would be one that I got to actually like work with him, you know, and then learn from him as well too. But I think he's gonna, I think he's gonna do good things. He's also probably gonna end up producing and directing, and he'll never be on the other side of the camera again but with that face those looks he needs to he needs to stay in front of the camera 
how about for you, yourself? Any plans on producing and directing and doing some work in your own in that lane in the future? I have a, a two buddies of mine that we kind of like write comedy stuff because we're again we're easy laughers. Um, one of them is a writer. Uh, another one is an actor comedian that I work with, and then I'm more the the actor. Um, and so we kind of did a couple of uh, you know sketch comedy things. We probably get back to that. I'm actually supposed to see them on Friday. Um, and we produce a uh, short form stuff. We have a, a little comedy group called the Craftsmen um, that you can find some of our old stuff. The good thing was that all three of us got really busy. So we had to stop kind of making things because we had to take these opportunities. But um, I think that we're probably going to get back together and start making that kind of stuff. It would be, you know, sketch comedy, YouTube videos and things like that, short form. Um, these guys are really funny. And one of them is a great director. And so I'd love to get back to writing more stuff with them. But um, yeah, Craftsman with a K. Craftsman with a K. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Jay Ellis is in one of our things. You'll see him on there. <laughs> on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, so how do you cope here with being in the whole scene of acting? Because I know as far as my me, when doing research about you, you've probably been one of the most open and honest actors that I've heard speak on going through the depression, especially after the whole Jeepers Creepers 2 and the premiere. So being now a veteran in this business, what would you say is the best way for an actor to cope with depression when he's first starting out or even along the way here, what would you say is the best way to maintain your sanity? Yeah. I think you need something else. You know what I mean? Like, I think my, my downfall was that I did, I loved it so much that that was all I did was did acting, talked about acting, taught acting, tried to be an actor, you know, went and saw plays and stuff. And then when you feel like you're not invited to the party is when you can kind of get down. But if you can find something else, even as an artist that you do, that sort of fills you up, that's key, you know, and it might be like, uh, you know, surfing or, or I don't surf, but it might be surfing. It might be playing basketball. It might be going to, you know, play music, going to concerts, like whatever it is. It's a funny thing as actors, you think, um, or as people, we think that those are kind of trivial, especially when you're like hunger and you're working on your acting, you're like surfing. I'll do that when I'm done with my work, you know, or I don't know, maybe you're into yoga. You're like, oh, I'll do that when I'm done with my work. I'll go play basketball. But I think as an actor and as an artist, that is part of your work. Like you need to do that stuff so that you can take, have fresh eyes, like go to, go to a concert, go hang out with your people, like learn a, some, you know, hobby, to, you know, learn how to cook or do sourdough or whatever people were doing during the pandemic. Like that kind of stuff, like helps you realize that there is a world bigger than, than acting because actors are. I mean, we're self-absorbed, <laughs> we're actors, but it's also weird. I mean, we are like, it's a weird thing because my hobby is my passion. It's my business and it's my product, you know? And so like, I'm trying to sell myself to get hired over here, but also like at my, my deepest core, it's everything that I want to be. So it's this weird thing. Like if I'm a painter, I can paint something, I can put it up for sale and I can be away from it, you know? And even a musician, like the music goes through the instrument, but an actor, is it, it is them. And so when they don't want it, you know, you don't get hired for a part or whatever, you get cut, you know, from something or you're, you know, all the downfalls, it's you, you know, it's constantly you. So I think if you can realize that there's something bigger than that, um, that helps out a lot. And then this probably is true for every industry. Like there's an unwritten agreement that the industry will work in this way. Like everybody knows you're going to audition a million times, not get the roles, the numbers are stacked against you, 
It makes no, there's no rhyme or reason why they hire somebody or they don't hire somebody. You can take care of everything that you take care of. You can be great. You can work on your holes. You can work with colleagues who can, you know, tell you, hey, you're doing this wrong. This is slipping, like dig in here, get better at this stuff. But at the end of the day, like it's always going to be out of your hands. And every morning that you wake up and you decide to be an actor, you know that that's the agreement that you're entering into. So if you're just honest with yourself and you know that's the way that the game works and then you make the choice to go ahead and continue to play it, then you know that you're playing that game. So when the stuff comes your way, you can be like, all right, I didn't know that that was an option. I knew that that was what I was signed up for. And at any point, if you don't want to do it, don't. You know, like you can always check out. Hopefully you can pay your bills somehow. But I think that that probably happens in other industries too. Like you, whether you admit it or not, you know the rules of the industry. Um, and every morning that you wake up and you decide to continue to doing it, you're basically making an agreement with yourself and the pursuit that you're going after that you'll accept the ups and downs of it. And if you don't want to do it, then, then no one's making you, you know? So if I don't get a part or go somewhere else, I know that that's how the game works, you know? And then maybe I go and I play basketball or I go to a concert or I do something, you know, watch an easy comedy or something. Um, and then just keep a short list of all the ways you can you know, get knocked down and take them from your friends so that you know that they're possible. Everybody, somebody tells me a bad beat story and I'm just like, all right, that can happen. (laughs) And then lo and behold, you know, a pandemic, uh, you know, an international worldwide pandemic happens. No one knew that that was possible. (laughs) There you go. I was working on the flash for the CW recurring and, and came back from Vancouver on March 6, 2020 to like the creator and one of the directors slapping me on the back and being like, dude, we'll see you again soon. Oh yeah, that's right. They, they told you basically that you got the part. And then yeah, they were like, they were like, Hey man, you know, we, we're, we're going to bring you back. We don't care. It's the, we'll bring you back as a doppelganger. Like you're great. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> Hit the ground. March, March 13th, 2020. Pick my kids up from school. Never heard from the flash again. <laughs> 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 Who knew? Who knew that that could be one? Now I know. Now I know that potentially a coronavirus can take over the world. (laughs) And we're still going through it. Uh, Unbelievable. Yeah, definitely. But man, Eric, is there anything else that you want to speak on that you have bringing up besides, I know winning time season two is on the way. Anything else? Winning time season two is coming out. You know what I mean? I'll be out there. I'm I'm always say that I pop up just enough to make you think that, you know, we went to high school together. You think you know me because I'm not that famous, but famous enough. Um, No, I appreciate it, man. I really enjoyed talking to you and and all the questions were great. It got me to thinking about some things that I haven't thought about in a while. And I still love that hat. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I'm sure you'll be going deep here into the, the playoffs, man. I know the oh, Mets will probably, they'll be out first round against the Padres. I guarantee it. They're frauds. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> oh, but man, uh, how, how do you handle your October since you're not a horror movie guy? You just stick yeah. to comedies? Just stick to the comedies, man. Watch baseball, right? Baseball, baseball, yeah, baseball. And um, get my daughter ready with her Halloween costume. And um, no, I won't. I won't be watching any horror movies this month. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe put on Jeepers Creepers too if you see it on Sci-Fi. But I should watch it again, man. It was really good to revisit it. It definitely was. And that one, I know where all the jump scares are coming, so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> uh, Eric, though, I want to thank you for coming on the show here tonight, man. Uh, I had a great time talking with you, and you offered a lot of important insight on just your work and just what other actors may be going through in the world right now. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate you bringing me on. That was fun. Uh, Of course. And they can follow you on Instagram and Twitter at Eric Nenninger. Yep.
everything will be there at Eric Nettinger on Instagram. I don't do Twitter that much, but you know, I still have the handle there. So, but yeah, everything's on, uh, everything's on Instagram there. Yeah. Eric, anytime you have anything to promote, you're always welcome back on the show for sure. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. And I'll be watching too. Congratulations right. to you. I appreciate that. Good stuff. Yeah. Cool, man. Enjoy the rest of your night. Take care and stay safe. All right. Thanks, Max. You too. Yeah. Peace out, man. See you, brother.